Welcome to Three Women with Three Ways. I'm your host, Heather Stark. We've covered so many uh, issues regarding women's rights, domestic violence, intimate partner violence, everything from pet safety to um, uh, service organizations. Today, we're addressing a subject that we should address more frequently. I know we've done a few shows on it, but not enough because it's such a huge issue. It's kind of the front line of what happens in dealing with domestic violence situations. And that is the police reaction, how police departments handle domestic violence situations. A lot has changed over the last few years. A lot has changed over the last few decades. Uh, it used to be that if the police got called to, uh, back in the 70s, if police got called to a domestic violence situation, they would take the offender out and walk him around until he cooled off and then just send him right back home. Um, it was perceived as an intimate thing, something between a husband and a wife that nobody else should be poking their noses into. So we come a long way. I suspect we still have a long way to go. And my guest today, Jennifer Bartak, is a police sergeant for the town of Deerfield, Massachusetts. I've been there where she has been employed since 2004. Jennifer specializes in sexual assault investigations and is the liaison to the high-risk domestic violence offender team with the Northwestern District Attorney's Office. She holds a BA degree in social services and criminal justice from the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Welcome, Jennifer. Thank you so much for having me. It's delightful to be here. Well, I'm so happy you could come and uh, uh, share with us. We talked a little bit off air about how different departments, different states handle things differently. You're going to tell us a lot about what you know about Deerfield, Massachusetts and their police department. You're also going to tell us a little bit about the whole state because you're aware of that. Um, I'll interject with what I know about my state, Washington, and we'll just kind of give an overview of how these things are handled and uh, what we're doing today with police response. Jennifer, um, you handle mostly, um, you're in the high-risk domestic violence offender team, you're a liaison there, but you also specialize in sexual assault investigations. Let's start there. Sexual assault does not just happen between strangers. Sexual assault often happens as a co-offense with domestic violence. Is that your experience? Yes, that's very accurate. A lot of people think that sexual assault is an offender jumping out of the bushes and, you know, sexually assaulting somebody, which is such the rare case that just doesn't happen as frequently as people like to think it does. Unfortunately, sexual assault is really, it's the, we call it like a dating relationship. It's people who are acquaintances, people who are in a, a dating relationship or in an intimate relationship with somebody. And that's where sexual assault occurs. And in many states, when I grew up, and as you, you can see, I'm not a, a spring chicken, um, but when I grew up, it was very common for married women to be raped by their husbands and police did nothing. The laws did not require the, that the police do anything. That's changed, I think, in every state at this point. Yes, that um, has changed. Yeah. So do you often uh, see a report of sexual assault that then leads in an investigation to discovering more um, domestic violence? Or do you see domestic violence that then leads to, how, how, does, how do you see that in your- uh, I, would, I would say it's more domestic violence that would then turn into the lead of a sexual assault investigation. It kind of, um, if there's a high risk domestic violence situation, usually sexual assault is part of that. So when we go to, to go to a scene, there's specific things that officers are going to be asking a victim. Um, and if we're thinking this may be a high risk situation, you know, for sexual intercourse is part of a high risk assessment, assessment kind of cue point. And if that's happening within a relationship, 
we may be thinking this might be more of a high risk domestic violence situation, which could lead to homicide. Do you see, I have, I'm not familiar with studies, if there is the sexual assault component with domestic violence, does that usually have a higher lethality or does that usually mean it's a more dangerous situation for the victim? It's definitely, I don't know this, the numbers of if it's a higher fatality rate, but it's definitely a, a cue point of a more dangerous situation. If, if a offender is forcing somebody into a sexual, um, sexual relation, sexual abuse, that's definitely a red flag for us for prosecution that we need to take this into the high risk level. Can you take us through a, a scenario? Um, you go, you get a call and uh, the police get a, get a call. How do they respond? Do they have a team? Do they have um, uh, special officers that, that do it or are all the officers trained? Take us through what happens when um, someone calls and reports a, a, a problem in their neighborhood that they are suspecting domestic violence or if a victim calls. What happens then? What kicks into action? Okay. So for my department specifically, we're a smaller rural department. So we always have two officers on 24 seven. So generally two officers are going to respond in my specific town of Deerfield. In other towns, they may have more officers who respond, but we're all pretty much trained the same way across the state. In the police academy, there's a big section about domestic violence and the preferred police response in Massachusetts. So the first thing we're gonna do when we get on scene is we're just gonna cautiously approach. Obviously, this is the most likely situation where a police officer is going to get injured or killed is in a domestic violence response situation. So we're always responding cautiously. We're listening as we're outside of the residence and we're not really gonna enter unless there's exigent circumstances until my partner arrives. So in my town, that may be a few minutes before my other backup arrives on scene. So if I don't hear a commotion going on inside, I'm just gonna wait for a moment until my responder, my backup responding unit shows up. Now, if uh, I can interrupt, you said unless there's exigent circumstances, what would that be? Uh, so if I can hear that there's an active assault going on inside the residence, screaming, yelling, things going on that I know I need to intervene immediately, unless there's, if I don't serious, you know, injury could occur, then I'm just entering right into the, to the residence immediately. So that's what I would to, consider. You have to weigh that with the higher risk to you yourself, right? Correct. Okay. And that's, 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 yep, that's part of the risk of our job. Okay. All right. Thank you for letting me interrupt. Go ahead, please. That's okay. So um, once we, you know, we get on scene, the first thing we like to do is we like to separate um, both parties. I should also say that our dispatchers, if they're on the phone with a domestic violence victim who's, who has called in, the neighbor hasn't called in or somebody else hasn't called in, there is a slew of questions they're going to be asking, such as, are there weapons present? Is the person still in president? And one thing I specifically ask if I'm being dispatched and you'll hear it usually on my dispatch, do I have the right to enter the residence from the person on the phone? That way, if I get on scene and everything's quiet and a, a suspect has somebody hidden away so that I can't get in, I know I can enter lawfully because I've already gotten that right from the, the victim who is on the phone. So when we arrive on scene, we're going to separate the victims and we're going to uh, victim and suspect, and we're going to talk. We're, we have a lot of things. It's not just as it used to be with these quick questions. It's, it's very in-depth and we want to know kind of why we're there today, but then we're also going to go into a long history of abuse and, you know, what's been going on in the relationship. Uh, we're obviously taking observations of the residents, if it's in disarray, if there's ob uh, evidence of a struggle, evidence of a, uh, signs of injuries. If there's children in the house, we're going to separate at some point. We're going to separate and talk to the children. 
Um, I should say that, you know, just because we're talking to the children does not mean that we're going to take them away from the victim. A lot of people are very concerned that when the police speak to the children, that means that, that the DCF or family services is going to come in. And that, that's definitely not the case. We're just trying to build all the collaborating evidence of the possibility of uh, uh, domestic assault. Okay, and I, I know you have mentioned two police officers at this point. I know in our state, or at least in the Seattle area, for a long time, I don't know how it's working with COVID, whether they're still doing it, um, but they had a domestic violence team that would come with them of advocates or an advocate. And that person, of course, would not enter the fray until everything was settled down. But then after uh, things were resolved and the um, victim was there, and I use the term victim because if you're being victimized, you're a victim. And um, then uh, after police kind of had things sorted out, then they would take the victim and uh, um, set her or him aside with the uh, advocate to explain what happens next, what that, per and I'm going to say she because the vast majority of victims are female. Um, mm -hmm. So you don't have to send me an email. I'm aware that men can be abused too. Um, and <laughs> uh, and they will take that victim and, and um, hook her up with that advocate. So the advocate can then talk more about resources and everything. Do you have anything like that in your department or the police officers, do they have to do that role too? We have to do that role. We have uh, a DVIP, which is the Domestic Violence Intervention Program that we can call into. And pre-COVID, um, they would have a response that would come out, but it was usually quite a ways after an arrest has been made. So really the police play the advocacy role until the victim is into the criminal justice system and they're assigned an advocate. Um, I do many emergency restraining order applications on scene. And usually that's the role of the domestic violence advocate. Um, but we've all been trained how to do that so we don't have to prolong a victim staying in a residence if they would like to leave or to try to get into safe housing. Okay, so the police uh, have entered in, in our scenario. Uh, mm -hmm. They've separated the two um, parties and possibly more if there are children involved. What kind of training do your officers get for what kinds of questions to ask well, we're trained to really look at questions and we're also trained to look at physical responses. So just because they're giving me an answer and but their body's telling me and their language is telling me things otherwise, that could be a cue right there. So if I'm asking them a question and they're looking away or down from me, that's usually a sign that they're not really comfortable responding or there's something else going on. There's maybe some trauma there that I need to dig a little further. Uh, so we're asking a lot of questions, but we're also looking at the body responses. So it's kind of a twofold thing. So not only do we have to be asking technical questions, we also have to be reading body language. We have to be reading body language of the suspect. If he's puffing up his chest, or again, I'm using generalized terms here, he and she. Um, but certain things, you know, when we separate them, technically we like to be in view of the other police officer just because it's, again, the very dangerous situation. But that can also hinder us because if the suspect can still have their eyes on the victim, they can still be intimidating from afar. So I like to have them just around the corner, somewhere I can hear the other officer if they need help. But I don't want to be so far, you know, I don't want the victim and the suspect to be able to see each other because they could still be, you know, intimidation just by a look. You know, and those are certain cues that we're also we're picking up on if there's that shy look if that or that real that dark, how they say throwing daggers with your eyes if I'm seeing those types of cues, then I'm thinking there may be some intimidation going on here that I need to be digging into further. 
Yeah, that look that you're talking about is commonly known in the industry as the look. Yeah, I, I mean, exactly. it, it, it's serious. I, I, I mean, yep. every victim that I've ever spoken with goes, the look, the way he would look at me and, and every victim knows exactly what you're talking about. And, you know, each person thinks that she's the only one who's ever seen that look, <laughs> you know, well, but it's, yeah, it's and there. We're certainly trained to, to look for that thing. If I see what I think perceive as a look, and then I see a reaction of a victim of either going down or changing their story, then there's something else going on here that I need to be aware of and I need to be digging in further. Okay. So what other kinds of questions do you ask? Do you ask um, how this occurred? Do you start with the event? What, how, walk I, me through I generally that. like to start with the event of why we're here today, because that's going to build my probable cause. So in Massachusetts, we have kind of a standard for arrest is, you know, the arrest is based on probable cause. So if we have probable cause, the state that the preferred response is arrest. Um, it's mandated for us to arrest if there's any sort of protection uh, order or what we call a 209A in effect. If there's any sort of violation or any abuse with a protection order in effect, it's mandated that we make an arrest. So let's talk here about um, many states have mandatory arrest that in other words, when something like this breaks out and there's a police response, somebody, somebody is going to be taken in, into custody. Mm -hmm. um, and there's been a lot of controversy over who is taken into custody because um, oftentimes um, a, a common scenario is, you know, the perpetrator uh, abuses, 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 the um, uh, victim finally slaps back. And as soon as that happens, bam, he's on the phone calling the police saying, look what she did to me, you know, the, see, see what she did. Um, so oftentimes I have heard um, that uh, there are kind of unjust mandatory decisions made when there's mandatory arrest. Can you talk a little bit about mandatory? You said mandatory arrest if there's a violation of a, of a no protection order, but are, is there another requirement for your department to make an arrest if there's a domestic violence situation? Yeah, so uh, again, it's on the standard of probable cause and whether that exists, the district attorney's office would like us to make an arrest. Um, we do have discretion. I should caveat that with there is case law that if officers are failed to to act with when there's probable cause for domestic violence or domestic assault or we it's a 1988 case law it's Heinsohn versus the city of Chester, where officers are you aware of the case. Yes, I am. Yeah, where officers failed to act. And they were held, they lost their qualified immunity and they were held liable and the city was held liable for the death of a domestic assault. Uh, victim she was shot to death I believe so so even though we have that standard we are not going to take the risk of more abuse occurring if we do not make the arrest and generally this is where if I've decided there's probable cause to make an arrest I'm taking the 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 burden off the victim and I'm saying this is my choice I'm making this arrest because I have probable cause so I'm really as sometimes the, the victims get that Stockholm syndrome of, please don't arrest you know they 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 get so manipulated and they're so so intertwined in this cycle of abuse that they, you know, it, and it's a difficult situation because sometimes it's not the best thing for the victim at the time, but I'm thinking long-term gain. So yes, this might be a traumatic victim and there's signs of abuse and I'm making the arrest. 
and then I have to look at going down the road. There's another thing I'm gonna do is I'm also gonna to try to find if there's any other offenses that I can charge for. So if there's abuse of an animal, if there's unsecured firearms, if there's intimidation of a witness, say the, the victim is saying that, oh, well, he, he or she wouldn't allow me to make a phone call. That's you know, another charge. And I'm gonna to wanna to stack these charges, uh, resisting arrest. If I, at this point I've decided I'm going to arrest, and I place the person into handcuffs. If there's a resistance, if there's an ABPO, which is an assault and battery against a police officer. So I try to not go into court with just one simple domestic assault and battery. I, I wanna try to find these other charges because that gives us a long-term plan with prosecution down the road to have other things, say the, the victim decides they do not wanna cooperate, which is very common. Then prosecution can go forward with these other charges. So there's other ways to hold a batterer accountable for their actions. If I can interrupt again, um, it used to be that police would um, require the victim to press press charges. And if she did not do that, then there were no charges to be had. And that, of course, has changed as well. And what you're describing is, no, it's not the victim that presses charges. It's the police officer that files the charges. Um, and the, the victim could be a witness, or but these things will happen without her, with Correct. or without her. Correct. Yes. So we take the burden off the victim and we are, we are bringing the charges. Very so the Deerfield good. Police Department is bringing the charges, not the victim. Okay. And I think a lot of what you're describing is pretty standard now in most police departments. But one of the things that you mentioned was the Stockholm syndrome as a, 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 a reason that um, the victim may not want uh, to have the perpetrator arrested. Um, I would argue that there's probably some more practical um, aspects rather than just Stockholm syndrome. Well, yeah, you know, yes. um, that, that, that is more practical. What am I going to do? How is he going to react when he gets out? What, what's going to happen down the road? Um, so that's just my two cents thrown in there that there may be uh, certainly some of the Stockholm syndrome uh, stuff going on, but I suspect that in most cases, it's much more practical um, and, and less uh, psychological than that. Um, Absolutely. There's, it's so complicated. There's, you know, if there's children at the residence, financial security, love, emotions, there's, yeah. there's a lot of things that, that play into that decision. And I'm certainly not one to judge any, any person's decision, whether they want to proceed or not. You know, I, I'm in talks and lectures that I do about domestic violence, a lot of times people will say, well, why didn't she leave? Why didn't she do this? Why didn't she do um, And, or, or well, she left or he, he was arrested. She called the police, he was arrested. And then she took him right back. And why would she do that? There's something wrong with her, you know, because this is the route, a direct route to victim blaming. And I always say studies show that it takes seven attempts to quit smoking. How many attempts do you think it takes to quit a future that you had planned, a life, a family? A, you know, I, it's it's not a simple thing, you know. So, and any of, for any of the smokers who are listening, they might understand a little better. <laughs> but if it takes you seven tries to give up a cigarette, what does it take you uh, to give up a life and a history and you know a future? So. Absolutely. It's, it's so complicated. And like you said, if there's children involved, there's children in the residence. So, so many things of being in, in certain schools, you know, if I leave, then I'm going to have to move my children out of that school district. So there's so many complications and we're certainly, you know, uh, sensitive to all of those things. And we never make judgment if people go back there's That's not for us to judge. We're there to help. Yeah. 
Well, okay, and I interrupt you. I want you to go on with your scenario. Okay, so you we left off before I interrupted you where you were saying that you were looking for other charges, other things you could charge for, witness intimidation or resisting an officer, uh, animal abuse. What about coercive control? I know that's not illegal in most states. I think there are a couple who have actually done it. Certainly other countries have done it. Um, Coercive control is probably a lot more common than the actual physical um, uh, violations. What does your department, uh, department consider uh, coercive control? Do Tell me how that factors in and what you're able to do. So I think the course of control really comes into the dangerousness part of it. If somebody is controlling funds, if somebody's controlling who a victim can talk to, if somebody's controlling who a victim can see, um, things about, you know, if they're saying, I'm going to kill myself if you leave me, those are bigger parts of the picture. Um, they, they may more for us blend into the dangerousness part of it than into the, the very moment of that arrest. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. So you're looking for other things to charge. How do you decide which party to arrest? So it's, again, it's complicated, especially if you have a very manipulating abuser. Um, but generally, if we have the evidence that, um, you know, I, I should also, I digress, I want to go back to spontaneous utterances. Um, oh. If a, a victim is making, you know, either spontaneous utterances to um, the 911 dispatcher, if they're making spontaneous utterances to the neighbor who ended up calling 911, you know, spontaneous utterances are, are a good thing and I think really play a role in our decision making of what's going on because they're happening in the heat of the moment, they're happening in the panic. Can you give um, an example of what you're talking about? As, sure. So as if as somebody, as... you know, runs outside and goes to the neighbor, call 911, he hit me, he hit me, he hit me. That's certain something that I'm definitely going to be, you know, moving into sort of the spontaneous utterance realm compared to a police officer asking the direct question. You know, can you tell me what happened today? Mm -hmm. So that's something that's just coming out in the moment of the panic. Mm -hmm. So in the scenario where you you go to the situation, say she the, the woman um, does uh, call and yell at a neighbor saying he hit me, he hit me, call the police. She calls, the neighbor calls the police and you uh, arrive at the residence and then you say, and by this time things have calmed down a little bit and you ask the question, tell me what happened here. And at that point, um, certainly the perpetrator will say nothing, nothing, she's overreacting. Um, and the victim would probably have sorted things out a little bit, thinking about the repercussions, thinking about all the things we were just talking about, you know, the schools, the homes, the long-term effect, if, you know, whatever happens. Plus I have to throw out the eternal hope that things will change, that it will get better. Um, and, and, you know, we all have hope. <laughs> That's not unique to uh, domestic violence victims. Um, but now she's going, you know, it was okay. It was okay. Um, either because of, you know, her, her rethinking or his intimidation or whatever. How, how do you proceed from there? I mean, if she just says, no, no, it's fine. Yes, we had an argument. No, it wasn't that bad. It, it's fine. I'm fine. Thank you for coming. Bye. So in Massachusetts, we look at um, if, if conflicting information is coming in, if I'm getting, I'm, I'm dispatched to a call of a neighbor calling in that, uh, I'm again using generalized terms here, a woman has run outside and saying, he hit me, he hit me, call the police. And then I get on scene and I see that there's probably, again, some force of control. Like you said, she's calmed down. She's not really wanting to speak. We can use unsubstantiating, you know, unconflicting information to build our probable cause. 
if I see that there's marks on their, their arms, that they're not willing, they're fresh and they're not willing to tell me how they, they happen. If I have a neighbor saying she ran outside, she was screaming and yelling and crying saying he hit me, please call the police. So I can take those things and I can build my probable cause with that. If I go in the residence and there's, you know, it's disarray and it's obvious signs of a struggle. So we can use that as part of our, our procedure to move forward of deciding who we arrest. Okay. And what about physical evidence? I mean, in my scenario that I came up with where he's hit her, he's hit her, he's hit her, and then she hits him back. Mm -hmm. Obviously they might both have bruises or scratches or whatever. How, what, at what, at what point does that physical evidence tip the officer's decision as to who to arrest? Yep. So we're definitely going to examine the, the, the injuries. So certain things like if we see injuries on back of arms and hands, like they're, they're blocking themselves, trying to, uh, you know, not get hit. Um, certainly strangulation marks are actually very difficult to see unless they're, you know, have been held. So a lot of times if somebody has been strangled, you're not going to see the marks, but that's certainly a cue of a high risk situation. If somebody says he's choked me, we're no, we're moving into the possible lethal situation zone. Um, so we're going to examine the injuries and kind of, you know, if the um, male suspect has scratches, you know, the, the person, oh, she scratched me. Well, that's probably them trying to get away from the victim if he's holding them down. So we're going to really examine the injuries and see if they match up with the story. And if they look like they're defensive wounds compared to assaultive wounds, that will also play in our decision-making. I always have a cast iron skillet somewhere on, in, on my cupboard, not through planning, probably through inefficiency that I don't, when I wash things, I don't necessarily always put them away if I know I'm going to use them tomorrow, or, you know, that kind of thing. And when you were talking about the defensive thing, I, I immediately thought, well, what if I grabbed that cast iron skillet and whapped, you know, <laughs> that person, that's more than a scratch. Are you able to identify those kinds of reactions as reactions rather than um, instigations. Yeah, it's again, it comes to the difficult realm. Um, you know, we, we certainly, Massachusetts wants us to shy away from dual arrests. They really, they discourage it. Um, but if a, say this um, gentleman or, or the, the, in your scenario, um, the response, <laughs> My frying pan scenario. Yeah, yeah your frying pan scenario. <laughs> So your victim's response is, is kind of like, oh, well, you smacked him in the face with a frying pan. That's, you know, that's not great. And I understand the abuse, you know, you were abused, but you took it to the next level by hitting him in the head with a frying pan. Yeah. So, you know, again, Massachusetts really sh wants us to shy away from dual arrests. Um, but sometimes it does happen if, um, you know, the victim's response to the abuse is superseding the, the initial abuse that was happening. Um, we have to kind of take that into effect. And it, it has happened. We have arrested two parties before when we cannot decide who is the primary aggressor in the, the uh, current situation. It's rare, but it does happen. Okay, that's good to know. Um, it's also good to know that a victim has to, uh, in the heat of the moment, evaluate the strength of her response to defend herself. Hmm. <laughs> it's, it's so complicated. And, you know, certainly it's something that I think society, we, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's so prevalent in our society, but it's not as known as it should be. I mean, it's, it's not splashed all over the news. It's not, you know, it's not in the, the, the law. And specifically in Massachusetts, we have to sanitize our logs to take out domestic violence and sexual assault crimes. So I think it's happened so much more and it happens within the privacy of people's homes. 
So people don't know as hard of a problem as it is in Massachusetts and in, in the nation. Well, and being part, I'm going to interject a little personal stuff here. At, at, at being in the media, um, I think that the media bears a huge responsibility for the public reaction to domestic violence. I think media is getting a little better, but um, wow. I mean, I was, this is probably 12 years ago, maybe even more. I was reporting news on our radio stations in Seattle and it was a weekend and we had all of a sudden this, this car chase situation going on. And oh my gosh, it was reported this woman was in a car and she was just tearing through, uh, you know, just, she must've been drunk. She must've been something, you know, she must've been impaired. She was just tearing, tearing, tearing through, hitting cars, you know, moving along. And then there was another car chasing her, blah, blah, blah. Finally, she hit the, the, this car chase was in, you know, being reported for probably 25 minutes before she finally hit something, rolled her car. She's dangling upside down in her car and the car that is chasing her, the guy gets out and starts reaching her car, hitting her. He was abusing her. She was trying to get away. What astonished me is how that fact was pretty much ignored in the media. The fact that here is this poor woman desperately risking her life trying to get away from this person who also, as a crazy person, is following her through city streets. And it was at least a week or two weeks before that even came out. I think that what the response that you're talking about, I, I think we're, we, I, I think the media is to blame for a lot of that. We need to become more aware and stop reporting on how nice the guy was after he murdered his wife and children. Um, <laughs> that's just my little aside. <laughs> I, I completely agree with you. It's, you know, it's, it's, so I will call it victim blaming, you know, the, oh, yeah. the, you know, what did, what did she do or what, you know, what did they do to do, to their, you know, to make, him do that and again it kind of goes back to the misogynistic nature of our culture right now which i think is shifting which is fabulous but in the 1950s and the 1940s and you look back in massachusetts it was back when we were writing laws the common law you know the common law i believe it's called the common wife law or something to that respect where the woman is the man's property and he has the right to abuse her and that's keeping her in her place and so we're obviously it's taken generations for that mind shift to start to move away from that but it still bleeds over into our culture and, and into the media and i think it's you're correct you hit the nose on the head it's nail on the head it's it's important to start really examining these situations and saying well wait a minute she was running for her life she was you know she was terrorized and we have to look at that part of it not you know, the whole other aspect of it. Yeah, it, it, it's just insidious in our culture. We've made leaps and bounds, but I think that we still um, focus primarily on those broken bones and the black eyes. Mm -hmm. We don't look at all the stuff that surrounds it, uh, the coercive control, if you will. And so I guess that was what my question was about when I'm asking about coercive control, how you take that into account. I know it's not a law that you, uh, that you can charge someone with, but do your are your officers trained to see that as a factor in the the overall domestic violence situation? Yeah. So again, it's not something you we can't charge for it, but it's building that whole totality of circumstances for us. If we you know ask these questions on our game, we have a dangerousness worksheet that we bring we have with us in our patrol cars that we can ask the victim on scene, and a lot of those points of course of control are on the dangerousness worksheet. So that certainly, and certainly when, and we have a strangulation worksheet that we also go through. And again, those are parts where 
you know, the course of control comes in and it's just painting the whole picture of the relationship compared to that one small moment. Okay. Okay. So we've left your, your scenario with uh, the police officer there looking at all these other uh, signs, looking, gathering this information, just gathering an information, questioning witnesses and not just asking their, uh, their, for their words, but also looking at the circumstances, looking at the scene uh, and, and seeing what they can gather from that. Um, what, when do they decide whether somebody needs medical attention? What, what are they the ones that do that? And if so, they, do they call, who do the, what, what happens with that? Yep. So um, if I have any, any signs or any, anything that's leading toward any sort of strangulation, I'm automatically calling for an ambulance. Um, it doesn't take much pressure on your throat to have certain small bones to break and it may not be showing injury now, but in a few hours, swelling may be occurring. And I'm always pressing persons. If there's any sign of strangulation, we really need to go to the hospital. You really need to get looked at. If there's obvious signs of, um, you know, contusions that are swelling or anything, I, I, yes, I always call for an ambulance, you know, to, to arrive on scene just to evaluate, um, and it may just be a refusal, but it's peace of mind that the person's been looked at and that they, you know, they know that medical attention is there if they want to seek it. Do you advise them to seek medical attention as soon as they can? If it's Absolutely, especially when it comes to a strangulation, if they refuse on scene, I, you know, and I have the ambulance come out and they certainly, they, they decide they want to refuse. I get them pushing them to go to, you know, follow up care, either go to the, if you have any difficulty breathing, any hoarseness of your, anything going wrong with your throat area, please call 911 again. We will, we'll bring the ambulance. We will get you, you know, medical care as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. Okay, so now the police officers have gathered their information. They're ready to make a decision about an arrest. Do they consult with each other? What, what, how do they, how do they determine that? If it's safe to do so, if it's still a volatile situation and, and we can't consult them, I have a little signal. Like it's great having a partner because I have a little signal that I give my partner that either place that person under arrest. Um, I have probable cause and I'll, and I'll certainly do that little signal, which is for me is tapping my wrist together. Um, and that's my cue to the other officer that that person needs to be placed under arrest. Um, <clears throat> if say the suspect has fled the scene and we have probable cause, I'm gonna put out a countywide bolo. I'm not gonna leave the victim. I'm certainly not gonna leave the residence in, unless the, the victim's coming with me, hopefully to the police station to get a seeker restraining order if applicable. Um, so we're certainly, we can share our probable cause across town and across the county lines. So if it exists, um, you know, if the, the suspect flees the scene and they go to their, um, you know, best friend's house several, several uh, towns away, if that police department ha happens to find the vehicle or happens to find that person, they can arrest that person for domestic violence on my probable cause. Oh, wow. That, is that an unusual situation or is that common with police departments? I'd say it's about probably 40% of the time we have uh, a suspect that flees the scene, maybe a little less. So, and, you know, if as long as uh, it's during not court hours when we can't find it, we go seek, seek a warrant, say it happens on a Friday afternoon uh, or Friday evening and the courts are closed, my probable cause holds and they can arrest um, anywhere the person is located. Mm, wonderful. Now, okay, so they decide the one uh, who the perpetrator is, um, decided that unless it's a, a really an unusual situation, they have a perpetrator, not two. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, they take this person in. And let's use the common scenario of it is the male perpetrator. 
do they just leave? They take him and leave? What what do they do for the, the victim? Anything at that point? So, yeah, so in Massachusetts, we are mandated to give them their what we call the 209A rights, which is their rights to a restraining order or, or refrain from abuse order. So uh, we will stay with the victim um, and, and offer them their rights. If they decide they want to seek an emergency restraining order, I will fill out that entire packet with them. I'll call the on-call judge. I will get that emergency restraining order issued right there. So they have that protection before I even leave the residence. Um, and then, then once you know, I've gathered all my evidence. I've taken statements. I've, you know, if say the again using your scenario, the female has left in an ambulance and there's children in the residence. I'm gonna, you know, take the children with me or call for an emergency response for Department of Family Services to come out and and stay with the children until we can find placement for that night or that day or whoever long the uh, the other person is in the hospital. Um, what Massachusetts does, which I think is great, after I'm on scene and I've, I've given all the victim all their protections that I can offer, you know, safe housing and domestic violence advocates, we have what's called NELQUIT in our area, the New England Transition for Women in, um, sorry, the New England Center for Women in Transition, which would be our domestic violence liaison kind of on-call emergency services. But what Massachusetts do is we hold suspects for six hours after the time of the arrest. And they've in 2014, they've mandated the six hour hold and they call it the cool off period or, or cool down period. And it really, it's kind of fabulous because it gives victims time to either seek housing, to seek, you know, if they're trying to gather items and get ready because they're gonna be staying somewhere else and they gives them time to seek a restraining order before the victim is, I'm sorry, before the suspect is released and could come potentially come back to that residence. It gives kind of that victim at six hours to really get some, I mean, they can never get something in order, but something emergency in place for the time being. And I've really found that the six hour old has been a, a huge, positive for our state. In our state, um, when a suspect is arrested, there is an advocate, and I don't know whether that advocate is with the court. It must, he must be with the court, he or she must be with the court, um, but they will call the victim uh, like the next day and say, okay, he's going to be released today. He went before the judge and da da da, -da. he's going to be released today. Um, they will liaison uh, with the victim so the victim knows what's going on and there are no surprises if he shows up at a door or something. Is, is there something like that for, for in your state? Correct. So if it's after court hours, it's on the police officers to make that notification. So if it's say I make the arrest on a, a Saturday afternoon and the six hours, it's now Saturday at midnight and I need to, I, it's on me to notify that victim. And that may be driving over to the residence and telling them if I cannot get them, you know, by the cell phone numbers they provided. So we're really trying to get the most up-to-date contact information. I asked, you know, I'm not gonna tell the offender this, but where do you think you're gonna be staying? Cause I have to notify you when they are released. Uh, if it's during court time, say it's Monday morning after arraignment, then yes, an advocate from the courts will reach out to the victim and advise them that they've been released. Great. Thank you. Uh, you know, I don't think I've ever heard uh, just kind of a play-by-play, -play, so I really appreciate that, you know, and, and again, it, it differs slightly depending on the state, depending on the county, depending on where you are, uh, but I think that what you have described is the way that things are kind of going. It's, it's, it's the way that um, people are, are being trained now to deal with these scenarios. We have some time left and I'm, I'm glad because one of the things I wanted to speak with you about, and I know you're passionate about it, is what can the victim do? Mm -hmm. um, that's huge. It is huge. Um, I think what's really important for victims to do is, you know, they 
provide a statement. Um, a lot of times, if they're not willing to provide a statement, it, it, it comes be a little bit harder during prosecution times, but it also, it, moving forward into the court purposes, if they provide in a written statement, that can be used for the restraining order application, that can be used to refresh your memory at trial. So it's, and it, it makes them not have to recall, they can refresh their statement on the stand. So that's certainly helpful. We ask them, or I ask them, if there's injuries, um, I'm going to take a progression of photographs of injuries. So if there's a fresh injury that day, I may respond two or three days later and take the progression of the injury as it, you know, grows and like I say, a bruise as it goes through its phases of, you know, how a bruise uh, heals and, and forms. Um, if, if I could interrupt again, I'm sorry, I'm great with interrupting. That's okay. Um, I think that's because if I don't, <laughs> if, I, if I don't interrupt and ask it right now, I'll forget it. Um, you talk about the progression photos, et cetera, and it sounds like you as a police officer will go back and take those photos. Is that what you're, Correct. okay. Yes. But if a woman is, is um, uh, if a person is being abused and has not yet notified police, it sounds to me like this is something that she can do on her own. It is. To create a record for police or for prosecution later. Is Correct. that- that's something I would advise if somebody's being abused and they haven't gotten into the, the point of police intervention or criminal justice intervention at that point, I would suggest taking photos of past injuries, having a log, having kind of a, uh, I would say a running log of abuse, but make sure you're storing this in a place that the victim, I'm sorry, the suspect cannot get a uh, get to it. So if there's a, something like a photo vault on your cell phone, if you're able to hide these photos so that the suspect can't see that you're documenting the abuse, tell friends, tell family. It's, it's incredibly, you know, humiliating. It's, it's incredibly degrading to be in an abusive relationship. And we want you to have that support. So if you have that support from family and friends, if the police arrive on scene and we're gonna ask you, is there somebody you can call? And yes, I can call my sister. I can call my mother. I can call my friend. They, they have, you know, seen past, you know, trends of abuse. That's huge. Cause you're gonna have that support. That's not me as a police officer arriving. It's going to be a support of a loved and caring one that you're, you know, you're intimate and, or have a relationship with, which I think is important. But again, to document it, um, to keep kind of running scenarios, a lot of times victims don't want to believe their victims. They think, oh, this is this is just me. And suspects makes people feel the gaslight. They make them feel that this is your fault. I did this because you did this and this is all, you know, and, and it takes a while, but eventually victims are like, wait, this isn't right. And quite honestly, if you're asking yourself, is this abuse? It probably is abuse. So you should really, if you're asking yourself those questions, you really need to take a step back and really evaluate, well, what's going on here? You talked about um, in keeping records and sharing them, which is crucial. Um, I, I've heard over and over and over again where a woman goes to divorce or she goes, you know, and um, it's all, well, you've never said anything about it. You never, you're just making that up for court today, aren't you? So you can get custody of the children. It is crucial that you have that support and share with people, even though it's humiliating. And for those people out there who are dealing with somebody in their lives who is experiencing this, I think part of the reason that it's humiliating to share this is because the person that gets the photos or, or you know, whether it's mom or the sister or the good friend or whatever, 
their first reaction is you got to get out, you got to get out. And as we discussed before, it's hard to understand, but there may be some very concrete reasons why she doesn't need to get out. Um, that in fact, she may be doing more to risk her life by getting out than by staying or her children's lives by getting out than by staying. So part of the risk of sharing this information is the judgment and pressure from the people you share it with to act right now or act right now, do this, and then disdain or disregard for you if you do not. So that's a huge emotional thing. And I hear you saying that you tell women uh, about sharing this stuff. Do you address that? Do you talk about that? Is there, I guess what I'm, my, in my brain, I'm thinking, why isn't there some non-judgmental repository that I could just <laughs> send these photos to or my journal entries or whatever, where they would be kept safe and, and confidential until and if I need them um, for this, for, to, for, to substantiate what's going on. So what I would say, you know, specifically for people who are in high risk domestic violence situations, the most dangerous part and most damaged point of relationship is when they decide to leave, because that's when the abuser has lost control. So I would, you know, caution people who are the persons being shared this information, the family members who are, are taking this information. It's not as simple as leaving immediately. It's a very delicate balance of finding the right time, having a safety plan in place. And it might not be the right moment. You might take a, you know, it might take you a couple of weeks. It might take you even a couple of months before you can have everything lined up before you can make that jump. So for the, the families and friends that are out there who are receiving this information as, as infuriating as it is that your loved one is being abused, know that, you know, just be supportive. Um, don't be judgmental, you know, tell them that you always have a safe place. I'll always support you if you decide to leave. And I agree with you. I wish there was more of a, a, a judge, you know, non-judgmental place to do this, but I think it's also loved ones reactions of they, they, it's really hard to see their loved ones being abused. Yeah, it is. It's very, and for people who have never been through it, it sounds so simple. It, it sounds does. so simple. Um, just leave. I, I, I myself included, I, I hear lots of women um, when I was young saying, well, if anybody ever hit me, I'm out of there. Um, without the knowledge that it ain't that simple. <laughs> and if the hit comes, it's usually after weeks, months, years of grooming to accept bad behavior and controlling behavior. Um, so, you know, people just don't get it if they've not been through it. And it's hard to get, it really is hard to get it um, because it just doesn't fit anything in our experience. Uh, it, we've, nobody has ever trained us to expect that kind of behavior. Nobody's ever trained us, you know, to how to deal with that kind of behavior. So um, it, it's a tough situation. Um, but I think for women who are in this situation, you got to swallow your pride and start protecting your, your life and especially your children's lives. Because, yeah, you, you know, leaving is very, very dangerous. So even if it means swallowing your pride and admitting, oh, gosh, you know, you you you've been defending joe as being wonderful for all these years because that's what you've been groomed to do and now you have to admit joe isn't he's a real creep uh, okay so be it you know swallow your pride and protect your life and the life of your children okay that's my my soapbox i've called out several soapboxes during your discussion here i noticed i appreciate it <laughs> one of the things that you and i had talked about um off air is um protection orders 
I was kind of surprised when you were going through the scenario that officers can get a protection order right then during the arrest. What I've always heard is officers saying, okay, you know, go in and get a, a protection order tomorrow morning, you know, that kind of thing. Is that something that's unique to your police department or to Massachusetts? I believe it's probably unique to Massachusetts. Uh, I, I can't speak for other states, but I know that any point, um, non during court hours, I can help the victim get the restraining order or what we call the restraining order, refrain from abuse order. Um, and if it's two o'clock in the morning, then it's two o'clock in the morning. Massachusetts sets aside judges who are on call. Um, so I may be calling a judges in the Boston area at two o'clock in the morning, but I will uh, read the affidavit and everything that the victim has told me, my observations, the criminal history of the suspect to the judge and the judge right there will, will issue that order, which is great. That is amazing. That's amazing. And yes, people will say protection order is just a piece of paper. It's really not going to protect you. But this whole process is about accumulating those pieces of paper. And that's the first one you start with. Absolutely. Um, so it's, it's not to be minimized, even if it can't protect you, it can start the protection. Um, you know, it's the first step. Absolutely. One of the things that, uh, again, you and I talked about beforehand is what victims can do after police are called before they arrive, but before police come. Mm -hmm. And you had some really good suggestions. Yeah, I know um, it's our human nature if things are put out of order to put them back in place. So a lot of times victims will start cleaning up the scene before police arrive. And that's really counterproductive, it's counterintuitive and it's counterproductive for us because we wanna see this, you know, the disarray. We wanna see the, the house being, you know, obvious signs of a struggle. So if you're cleaning things up, that kind of takes away from it a little, you know, it, help, it hinders our investigation a little bit. So as much as we want, you want to clean up the scene, you want to make things, you know, you just, it didn't happen. I'll just put everything back. It's okay. You know, as much as your brain may be doing that, try to fight that urge and try to leave it as it was when you called the police. Okay. Is there anything else? Um, I think um, you mentioned the keeping um, a, a statement, doing a written statement, because I, I guess victims, don't have access to the actual police record and when they go to court or is that, is that? So I talked to a prosecutor about this. They do have the right to review the, the actual police report, but generally if you have your statement, you could read right from your statement on the stand. So that might be a little less traumatic if you're in a, a room of you know, 12 or six to 12 strangers on the jury, if you can read your statement from that day and that maybe make it a little less traumatic for you, you, you will kind of remember everything that happened that day is coming right out from, the, uh, from your statement. So that's certainly helpful. Prosecutor is always going to try to circle back to that and say a, a victim doesn't provide a statement, but they give me statements that I put in my police report. They will try to refresh their memory, as they call it, of do you remember what you told the officer or that sergeant that day on scene? And so they can kind of get those statements out that way. Yeah. One um, question that's going through my mind, your, your department is obviously very concerned and, and it sounds like you've trained your officers very well with the latest information. Um, 
one of the things that's just kind of spreading all over the country is this notion of uh, police reform. And honestly, I mean, I'm sorry, but if I hear reimagine policing one more time, can we come up with a new vocabulary, people? Um, <laughs> I, I've noticed that we, we latch onto one word and everybody from Alaska to Hawaii is using that one word. You know, I mean, we, we, do, we have a multiplicity of words, people. Um, but police reform is what it's being referred to. Um, uh, oftentimes that comes with um, recommendations or uh, as, as happened here in, in our area in Seattle, an actual defunding of the police department. Um, has that affected your department and what do you see as consequences of that uh, for communities where it happens and uh, what are your thoughts on that? Um, certainly, we've we've been listening to the protests. We've been listening to what people are asking for the communities. We're looking at it not in the domestic violence and the sexual assault side of it. We're looking at more of the mental health side of it. Um, so we are trying to implement social workers who are, you know, embedded within the police departments, and that's that's a new switch for us. Some other departments have tried it, and it's been a very successful program. But it's more of the the mental health element, addiction element. But circling back to domestic violence, there's kind of three types of abusers. There's the abuser who has a mental health problem, and if they are off their medications, then abuse happens. There's the abuser that is a substance abuse problem. It's either alcoholism or crack cocaine or some sort of stimulant that makes them abuse. And then there's the abuser that is just the jerk, the one that abuses for no reason whatsoever. So if if we have domestic violence and we can treat, and it's say it falls in the category of substance abuse, if we can treat the alcoholism, if we can treat the, the substance abuse disorder, then the, the, the domestic violence might disappear because you know that, that might be just the element to when they use, they, they abuse. So if we can treat that part. So that's where I think a social worker will be certainly helpful. But it's not changing any way of our response for domestic violence. We're still going to be responding the same way preferably with a two officer response to a scene. It may be more after the fact that we have uh, more social, social service types agencies who come in and assist the victim compared to me doing the restraining order on scene. Then we talked about how you had said that other departments or like you have a team that comes out maybe from Massachusetts, that would be kind of what our re-envisioning re would be of the police. Okay, so you, you're not seeing this as any huge detriment at this point to handling domestic violence? Not at this point. I think when it's, it's going to be a problem is if we start cutting um, police officers so we don't have the amount of police officers who can respond to a scene to keep it safe, then, then, I'll, then I'll start to be concerned. Um, but I think even for here, we have a, a mutual aid policy. So if, if one of my officers is tied up on a, another, uh, say, car crash and they can't break free and I'm dispatched to a domestic violence, I can call any surrounding town that has a police officer on or state police to come assist me. So I, oh. we're always going to be rolling with a two-person response That's, at yeah. minimum. Good. Um, one of the things that um, um, I am worried about is because of the dangerousness, as you mentioned during your uh, presentation, uh, it's very dangerous going to these situations. If you don't have trained police officers with weapons, um, I would think it would be even more dangerous. So I worry about somebody thinking, you know, that if we have a nice trained psychologist or a nice trained social worker, we can just diffuse situations. Um, and I'm, I know here in Washington State, we have had a very egregious 
situation with that. It was um, actually a, um, an exchange. Uh, 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 I forget what the title of the person was, but it was a, a person who was in charge of taking the children for visitation uh, to the father. And uh, she was supposed to stay and watch, but the father pushed her away, closed the door, killed the children and set fire to the house. Um, and so, you know, and that was several years ago, but you, you, I don't, I, I, I think that it would seem to me that if it was a trained police officer there with a weapon, that even if he had done that, something would have happened and, and that would have saved those children. So I, I, I have little red flags going up when we think social workers can do things, you know, sometimes things are nasty and dangerous. Um, no matter how much we think that we can talk our way out of them or, or heal our way out of them or whatever. I mean, and I'm not saying that social workers aren't valuable. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm just saying it, that, especially in domestic violence situations, it concerns me um, that decision makers might take those situations a little bit too lightly. Um, as far as I'm concerned, you know, send police officers, send three if you've got them on every one of these things, um, because it's, they're dangerous, not just for the victim, but for the people who are around as well. Okay, yes. see, another soapbox. You <laughs> well, I, I was going to add to that. And a lot of these, for these co-response models that we're working with, a lot of the uh, clinicians and, and social workers have told us, we're not responding without you. So it's kind of, you know, it would, yeah. it would be, you know, counterproductive to just send a social worker and one officer if they're saying they're already telling us we're not going unless you're there with us Good. so, so they recognize they, they do they, yeah. yeah yeah and i and i think it's again it maybe yes i would love the fact that if society could be better and and we wouldn't have to have armed police officers but unfortunately we have a lot of long long work ahead of us and a long road before our society has, has gotten to that point i agree Final question, because I'm looking at the clock. You, you keep seeing me, we're doing this uh, via Zoom and, and I'm sure you're wondering why my head keeps popping to the left. <laughs> I have my clock there. And uh, of course, radio is all about keeping, keeping the time here. So we have a couple of minutes left and I wanted to ask you about the effect of COVID on domestic violence cases in your um, area. Sure, so uh, I have to say at the beginning of the pandemic and the very beginning of the lockdown, it was very quiet. And I think that was pretty much statewide for us, just all calls, all call volume was down. Um, come July of 2020, everything just hit the fan and it has been nonstop for us. Um, and I think there's several uh, reasons why this is happening. One, um, we've seen, you know, uh, domestic violence cases or houses that we respond to often, you know, those are, uh, we go there and we, we're handling those calls, but then we've seen the whole domestic, the cases where we've never met this family before. And we've never interacted with them before. And I think the, the process or the being in lockdown, having children at home, having those extra stretches is just, if a relationship was having issues, it's just kind of boiled over. So come July of 2020, it's been nonstop. And I think that can safe to say that across the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, it's been pretty much like that for everybody. And I'm sure it's probably been nationwide. You know, um, in our state, we have, as a matter of fact, a, a very dear friend of mine created this in our state. It's called Kids Court. And when children are involved in uh, police actions or incidents or events um, and end up having to testify in court, 
it's very intimidating for a child. And so uh, kids court, uh, it went through ups and downs because prosecuting attorneys decided real judges couldn't be there to talk with the children. Um, and so they have an actor, you know, somebody who puts on a robe and they, they just have a day on a weekend where it's an empty court and they have their, their person wearing the robe and they talk about what can happen and they have parents there and everything. So it's just to get the children comfortable and uh, uh, able to actually testify uh, reasonably in a court. And it's not coaching them what to say, it's just making them comfortable. I would like you to come back sometime and tell me about the children. We really didn't talk much about children here and mm -hmm. what's going on in your state and um, what's happening with the children. So I'm inviting you back when you have time and maybe we can talk about those issues. Meanwhile, I thank you. I really, uh, yeah, I really enjoyed the actual walkthrough um, because I've not done it. I know a lot of people have done ride-alongs, et cetera. I've never done that. Um, and so I really appreciate this. And, and I thank you for the work that you're doing. It, it's just amazing. Well, I appreciate the opportunity to come on and, and anytime I would, the children part of it, I absolutely can uh, talk to that because I usually handle most of the child sexual abuse and child assaults in the department. So whenever you're ready, I'd be love to have that conversation. Great. I'll take you up on that. Meanwhile, thank you for listening to Three Women, Three Ways. Join us again next week.